Welcome back to another episode of the Future Cities podcast. I'm your host for the month, Stephen Elser. This month, I'll be speaking with a scientist in the Eurex SRN about Hurricane Dorian, urban and coastal flooding, as well as some of his work comparing nutrient uptake in urban wetlands in Valdivia, Chile, and Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to learn more about the urban wetlands in Valdivia specifically, you can go back and listen to a previous episode that we published back in March 2018 called Wetlands as Green Infrastructure in Valdivia, Chile. There's also a Spanish version of that episode published at the same time if you prefer it. Um, that uh, I will uh, preface that by saying it's me and uh, my colleague Jason uh, hosting that speaking our uh, pretty poor Spanish. So if you think you can stomach it, uh, you know, feel free to listen to it in Spanish. Uh, all right, so now let's get to our guest. Joining us today is Matt Smith, a PhD candidate at Florida International University. Uh, welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, exciting to be a part of the podcast now. Oh, yeah. Very excited to have you here. So uh, I, at first, I'd just like to give the listeners just a chance to get to know you. So could you uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I am, yeah, once again, currently a PhD candidate at Florida International University. Uh, I'm based in a department of biological sciences, and I've been involved with the Urban Resilience to Extremes uh, Network now for about three years. So um, now what we call an emeritus fellow. Um, and I am termed what we call a biogeochemist, um, but also an ecosystem ecologist. And most of my work uh, is placed within the urban ecosystem. So I study a lot of water dynamics, uh, stormwater dynamics uh, within cities. And I do a little bit of cross-city comparisons across our UREX network. Very cool. And yeah, we'll be talking a little bit about some of the cross-city comparisons uh, a little later on. Uh, so I guess, how did you get interested in, in urban systems and being an ecosystem ecologist? What, what brought you to it? Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. I want, I get that question quite a bit uh, through the years. And I actually, before I joined FIU three years ago, uh, I was working in a research lab at Texas A&M University. And it was a really great opportunity uh, to look across different terrestrial, uh, aquatic, and coastal ecosystems. And one way of doing so was looking at biogeochemical interactions and dynamics across those different environments. So one of the later projects I had uh, during that work stint was focused on the Buffalo Bayou watershed uh, that drains into the Houston area. Uh, and this is the same watershed that was affected by Hurricane Harvey in 2017. So this project was primarily focused on looking at residential soilscapes, is what we call them. Um, and this was an effort to see uh, different carbon storage mechanisms within lawns and manicured landscapes uh, as we move from more of an agricultural and rural environment uh, into the city of Houston. And so we were focused on seeing how differences in uh, flooding and rainfall can affect these carbon storage mechanisms. Um, but it wasn't until after I left that Hurricane Harvey had actually moved through the region and affected a lot of these landscapes and flooding that lasted for quite a bit of time. So it was the interaction with local community members, residents, 
um, that I found particularly interesting um, in terms of the day-to-day activities that they wouldn't necessarily attribute to uh, ecosystem ecology and some of the chemical dynamics we were focused on. Um, So it was bridging much more of a quantitative science to a community uh, audience that I found really interesting. And then as well as looking at these extreme events, so of course hurricanes and other extreme rain events, how those can affect not only the response we see on the landscape, but how we can feed that back into the activities and the way that we treat the landscape before those uh, hurricanes ever reach. So, you know, it's this quite a big feedback loop for us to understand how humans are involved in the ecology of urban landscapes. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great answer. Uh, and I know speaking to many people that, that both of us work with in the URXSRN and, and outside of the network as well, that I think what you spoke to about bringing quantitative science, quantitative science to communities, it seems to be a really um, common reason that people found themselves wanting to study cities. Because I mean, most of the world's population lives in cities. So if you want to do science that you know, it's directly applicable to people and their livelihoods. There's really, there's literally no better place to, to really do it than in the, the urban ecosystem, you know, realm. So, great. So you're at FAU, which is in Miami, Florida, and I'm sure many of our listeners um, have been hearing and reading all about Hurricane Dorian in the news recently. Uh, so before we get into some of your cross-city comparative work, I was hoping that we could just chat a little bit about this particular hurricane and its effects uh, on the city. Um, you know, through, through your eyes. Um, so as a citizen in the city that frequently experiences hurricanes, uh, I guess, what is the process like for preparing uh, for a storm like Hurricane Dorian? Uh, that's a great question. So Hurricane Dorian, of course, uh, had skirted away from South Florida um, and, you know, affected other areas of Florida on the coastline. But We really, in Miami and South Florida in general, we have such a comprehensive hurricane preparedness guide um, that has been developed over a number of decades now. Um, And it's actually an incredible community because we have learned from, of course, past extreme events, a number of hurricanes that have come through the Miami area. And it's through each of these storms that we learn from things that work out very well, um, infrastructure that seems to hold up. And then, of course, some things don't hold up as well. We learn from those mistakes and how we can build upon uh, that existing environment. So Miami-Dade County has actually issued um, a several iterations of what we call a hurricane guide. And once again, it's just about uh, a, an assortment of emergency planning resources um, an opportunity to sign yourself up for different alerts um, when it comes to uh, different stages of hurricane that may be encroaching on our area. Um, we have a number of different documents and guides that will lead residents to prepare their property uh, before the hurricane, what they can do in terms of hunkering down during the storm and then any cautionary measures they may take after the hurricane has passed. So it's this stepwise approach um, and actually a very comprehensive website that allows us to monitor the storm um, in real time. So, you know, a lot of this, of course, is based on uh, the individual level, the 
household and the neighborhood level and understanding what your individual risk may be to the storm. And so in an effort to provide that information, Miami-Dade County has uh, secured and identified different storm surge planning zones, they call them. Um, and these range anywhere from zone A to zone E uh, that differ in their risk and vulnerability to storm surge, uh, particularly from hurricanes. Um, and so, of course, we would expect that zone A, um, you know, that may fall along the immediate coastline, may be the most susceptible, most vulnerable to those storm surge events. Um, but even though you may be further inland in Miami and South Florida, we may experience other types of effects from the storm um, that may not be just related to storm surge itself. So there's a number of other resources that uh, citizens can look onto to say, my neighborhood is located within this part of the county. Um, what is my relative risk of flooding, um, of infrastructural damage? And yeah, so it's been, it's been in a, several iterations of the same guide, uh, but we've learned a lot over the past few years. So uh, you've mentioned the phrase storm surge a couple of times. I was hoping that you could maybe speak uh, just about what that actually is, uh, just for people that are maybe not familiar with the term who have never lived in a place that experiences storm surge. Yeah, of course. So when I talk about storm surge, I, I really just mean uh, inundation of coastal waters um, on, over uh, and above the coastline. Um, so we have a number of residential commercial areas that sit just along the water um, on the coast. And storm surge would just be the areas that would immediately inundate should there be uh, waves that come into the city. Um, so of course this would be considered somewhat of a sporadic risk. Um, we know that there are going to be intense uh, wave action along the coast um, that may actually be difficult to predict um, and so we do our best with the models that we can provide uh, to monitor these areas. So another term that I hear used uh, in reference to hurricanes is coastal flooding. Is that the same thing as storm surge? Good distinction. So coastal flooding is more of an umbrella term. Um, in essence, storm surge is going to be the immediate impact of waves um, onto the coast. While coastal flooding could be uh, driven by a number of other sources, um, including sea level rise, which of course is important in South Florida. Um, we may have uh, smaller, more um, steady wave action uh, that accumulates over time. Um, and with rising sea levels may have a different sort of impact on the urban ecosystem. Um, and so when it comes to Hurricane Dorian, and the time that it was planned to hit in South Florida, we actually were expecting a peak, what we call king tide. Um, and so this is also known as sunny day flooding. And in essence, this is our groundwater from underneath the city um, that's driven by this relatively high water table. And so during typically our fall season, anywhere from September to November, uh, we experience this elevated tide that rises from underneath. And so we experience inundation from our storm drains, um, our uh, piped stormwater network. Um, and of course that adds another level of 
flooding risk to the storm surge we would expect from the coast and any other um, slow drivers of change. So it really, thankfully, you know, Dorian had spared South Florida, uh, but had it hit, we would have experienced all types of effects from these different flooding events. Yeah, king tide. I, I don't know too much about that. How frequent did you say that that happens? So our highest king tide um, will happen over, you know, a handful of events of events, uh, really from four to eight throughout the course of September to November every year in the fall. We also experience a spring tide that occurs um, after the new year, um, typically lower um, in the amount of water that comes through. Um, and this, once again, is just related to the height of the underlying water table um, and how quickly that can uh, surcharge the storm drains and the pipes that would otherwise hold that within. You also brought up uh, sea level rise and how that can um, interact with uh, storm surge and some of the other uh, things you've been talking about. So could you speak a little bit about what Miami is doing to deal with sea level rise or how much sea level rise has the city experienced so far? Um, and yeah, I guess what, what are some concerns going into the future with regard to sea level rise? Yeah, so sea level rise is one of the primary um, concerns we have in South Florida. Um, and it's outlined quite a bit in our resiliency guide um, and action plan for the South Florida region. So, over the past few years, we've really been focused on identifying how we can bolster existing um, hard infrastructure. Um, so we have seawalls, um, a number of different canals that connect within the city. Uh, so we're focused on how we can exist um, or leverage existing resources to uh, create a more um, resilient environment. Those that would be able to withhold rising sea levels from coming within the city. Um, but we also were focused on some of what we call nature-based solutions. So this is incorporating some of the greener elements um, and or natural types of green infrastructure. And that may be including um, greater areas of wetland, um, incorporating other swaths of mangrove cover. Um, and mangroves are particularly useful for not only withstanding some of the storm surge effects on the coast, uh, but they can actually help to build the soils and sediments um, underneath so that we can actually somewhat keep pace with those rising sea levels. So it's, it's a mixture of these different, what we call green and gray solutions to rising sea levels. And in an effort to provide a more resilient city against these events, um, we are focusing our efforts on bridging practitioners um, dealing with the city, as well as researchers who are focused on performance metrics of these types of environments. Uh, so you're bringing up uh, green infrastructure and gray infrastructure as ways of dealing with sea level rise. Are those features the same ones that the city is using to address the other concerns associated with hurricanes? And could you speak a little bit more about some of the gray infrastructure solutions since you've chatted a little bit about green infrastructure so far? Yeah, so that's you know, a good point to make. Um, you know, I think it's all about finding the most efficient solution to provide the most benefit 
uh, to a number or range of solutions. And so we do combine both the green and the gray, the hard and the soft, if you will, um, to create a more resilient system. Um, and so these would be the same types of interventions that would help us protect against hurricanes. Um, I would say that with hurricane preparedness also comes <clears throat> a different layer of infrastructure that may be more about communications um, and the network involved to uh, bridge emergency response networks um, to each other before, during, and after a significant event. Uh, but when it comes to the heart of the gray infrastructure, you know, we're, we're talking about seawalls, we're talking about um, reinforcing the canal uh, walls and the structures, um, the lining of those canals to make sure that they are not leaking, um, have any cracks that would otherwise be susceptible to um, incoming saltwater. Um, and of course, we're also then concerned with the drainage network um, that is increasingly susceptible to not only rising sea levels, but the amount of saltwater intrusion that's constantly plaguing um, some of those uh, low elevation areas. Um, of course, this brings up a different uh, problem in the case of our drinking water supplies are coming from an extensive groundwater supply beneath the city. And as sea levels rise, we have increasing amounts of salt water that are intruding into some of these freshwater ground supplies that may affect our resiliency of freshwater in the future. So this is brought into the fold of different interventions we can do to make our system rely on some of these more natural interventions to bring um, the system out of just a hard and gray landscape and perhaps bring it back to its natural legacy of how well it was able to withstand hurricanes, how well it was able to clean up our surface waters, just based on having wetlands and having mangroves, having these natural elements as part of the landscape. So it's definitely something the city is keen on understanding. And then of course, increasing the efficiency and the performance of these interventions. Now, so since we're now on topic of wetlands, I think that serves as a good uh, segue into the next part of our conversation. So uh, Matt, you and I were both uh, at, recently at the annual Ecological Society of America meeting uh, in Louisville. And you gave a really cool talk and a session about novel and understudied aquatic ecosystems entitled A Comparison of Nutrient Uptake Dynamics in Urban Wetlands Across Different Regional Climates. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. So first of all, uh, what is nutrient uptake and why is it important for us to understand? So when we talk about nutrient uptake, uh, I'm mainly referring to nutrients. Uh, so some sort of subsidy that any life form can use to sustain itself, sustain the activities that it may perform. Um, and those may relate to the life cycle um, and the, uh, the natural processing within environments. So, Often we talk about carbon, and carbon is our energy supply for different life forms um, globally. And then, you know, our nutrients are supporting these different life forms along with carbon in the form of nitrogen and phosphorus. And these nutrients can come within a range of different, uh, what we call organic or inorganic um, forms or compounds. 
Um, and those are processed quite differently. So when we talk about nutrient uptake, that understanding has to bring in a lot of breaking down, you know, the biogeochemistry. So understanding how nutrients are related to biology of organisms, how they may use those nutrients, um, the geology, of course, you know, so where those nutrients may actually be sourced from. And then the chemistry may be related to the transformations that occur within a particular aquatic environment. Um, so in this case, we're focused on wetlands. Um, the transformations that will provide more bioavailable forms of nutrients for organisms um, to use. So nutrient uptake is understanding the process and the rate that nutrients are used, assimilated, and uh, removed from a particular system. So would you say that it's a good thing um, to have high rates of nutrients uptake in, a, in like a wetland, for example? Generally, yes. Um, I think it's important to know and take a step back in understanding the system as a whole. Um, of course, you know, removing nutrients um, that are in excess is a benefit um, or ecosystem service, as we would call it. Um, but of course, we want to still allow for those nutrients to be the subsidy that they may be. So there are, of course, going to be organisms and plants and microbes, bacteria that will need this nitrogen and phosphorus um, at some particular concentration. So removing and taking up those nutrients completely isn't the best. We want to find that happy medium of nutrient uptake so that we don't have excess nutrients um, that would lead to uh, uh, what we call eutrophication or nutrients in excess. Um, but then a balance also between having no nutrients at all. Right, and one of the results of having that uh, eutrophication, the excess nutrients, is uh, uh, unpleasant algae blooms, um, and you might see that uh, like in a case like Lake Erie, uh, for example, is pretty notorious for having large algae blooms. You see them also in the uh, in the Gulf Coast, um, where you have these big algae blooms, and when then the algae dies. Uh, a lot of the oxygen is removed from the water and then fish die. So that's so something, so having nutrient uptake rates uh, from these wetlands can help remove the excess nutrients and prevent those types of events from happening. Exactly. So uh, you specifically really uh, like to study urban wetlands. So could you talk a little bit about her, how urban wetlands and non-urban wetlands differ in terms of uh, their nutrient dynamics? Yeah, so the difference between urban wetlands and those in natural systems really boils down to uh, the structure of those wetlands and how it may relate to the overall function, um, either biogeochemically or physically in terms of moving water and organisms across the landscape. Um, and so when we talk about natural wetlands, we have a number of different forms and types uh, they take a number of different structures that, of course, relate to the way that they are able to process and uptake nutrients. Um, but typically, we see a natural wetland. We know that there is some form and usually some biodiverse amount of vegetation, um, both on the surface as well as deep-rooted vegetation um, that allow also for 
other types of organisms to uh, live within that wetland. Um, we typically associate wetlands uh, with not only water or what we term to be a hydro period, so the amount of time that water sits within a wetland, um, but we also talk about wetland age. And it's often that natural wetlands will have um, little disturbance from humans. Um, so they're able to mature um, in different ways um, as opposed to when we talk about urban wetlands that may be much younger in age. And that really relates to the amount of uh, sedimentation that occurs, um, the amount of microorganisms that will harbor within those sediments at the bottom of wetlands. Um, and that comes into play when we talk about nutrient uptake, which we can get into a little bit later. Um, and so on the flip side, when we talk about urban wetlands, um, a lot of times these urban wetlands may be constructed in some fashion. They may be created for a particular purpose. Um, so it's been studied in previous uh, projects that urban wetlands, constructed wetlands can you be used to uh, remove nutrients, excess nutrients from incoming surface waters. So increasingly cities have been able to include urban constructed wetlands um, in an effort to mitigate degraded water quality. Um, and so because they are constructed in some cases, um, they may not be as mature. They may have quite a different uh, microbiome than our natural counterparts. Um, but of course in urban areas and in cities, we experience uh, much higher overall nutrient loads. So we have a number of different sources of nitrogen that may come from fertilizer runoff, uh, may come from weathering um, and byproducts coming from road networks. Um, and then our phosphorus uh, may also be high that are coming from these surface waters and urban watersheds. Um, sometimes from similar sources, other times uh, that are derived from agricultural areas, um, any lawn care maintenance that may occur within dense uh, urban areas. And so it's these elevated nutrient loads that are often fed into these urban wetlands. And it's not as certain how those nutrients are processed or even if they're processed at all before they're transported downstream. So I was really curious and starting to unpack some of that information to say, how efficient are urban wetlands in taking up nutrients compared to natural wetlands? Great, and uh, you did this in two different cities, uh, Valdivia, Chile, and Portland, Oregon. So could you um, maybe speak a little bit about what it was like um, doing field work in these two different places, sort of trying to get at the same question and, and maybe some challenges that you, that you faced in terms of doing that work and doing the analysis and, uh, and things like that. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I had the pleasure of working um, in Valdivia, Chile uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, I was able to conduct a number of nutrient uptake experiments uh, within a beautiful network of wetlands that uh, ran right through the city. And so this provided a great opportunity for me to study these nutrient dynamics across a gradient of urban cover. So we have 
some watersheds that are primarily rural and agricultural in its land use. And then of course we have those that are considered to be downtown and primarily impervious cover uh, that are of course dictated by commercial and residential landscapes. So this was a great opportunity for us to study um, a city uh, of wetland network um, that primarily was focused on very low flow, um, fairly high residence time, water residence time um, wetlands that uh, were very, very limited in the amount of phosphorus that was supplied to these wetlands. And so very little uh, phosphorus was actually seen within and very high amounts of nitrogen were observed within these particular wetlands. And so we were able to look across such a wide range of uh, what we call nutrient limitation to in a sense better understand how wetlands may respond to subsequent nutrient loading events. So on you know, a day-to-day -day basis, we may be experiencing high nitrogen, low phosphorus waters coming into wetland. Um, but in the event that we have that occurring over months and years, are those wetlands actually able to process those nutrients in a way? And so this was in contrast to a second phase of the study that was performed in Portland, Oregon, where once again, we have wetlands that span across a gradient of urban cover and land use. Um, but instead of Portland wetlands being um, driven by low flow and uh, high water residence time, we see that there is a very complex and connected stream network that cuts through the center of Portland. And so this provided a unique opportunity for us to study uh, much more temporary wetlands that sit adjacent to these river networks and are able to process nutrients across a shorter time scale. And it was an interesting comparison. Of course, there were challenges in comparing across two very different cities, um, across different hemispheres, let alone. But this was all in a sense to say wetlands process nutrients um, in similar ways uh, when we move across the globe. Um, but we, when we drill down to site-specific characteristics of cities, uh, we may be able to partition exactly what's driving those differences in uptake. So Portland um, provided us much more of a smaller lens to look through. We were able to look at the finer details of inputs and outputs um, as opposed to those in Valdivia. Uh, but we found some interesting um, conclusions that um, we're still wrapping up as we speak. Awesome. Yeah, that, that boy, I mean, you know that uh, I love my time down in Valdivia, Chile, and it's so cool that you got to go down there and experience it and do these cross-city comparisons. I think it's really, really interesting. Uh, could you um, maybe share with us like a, maybe a fun story about some of the, or, or frustrating story that you had from doing field work in one of these places? Yeah, of course. So when it comes to field work in Valdivia, of course, there is the language barrier. Um, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be with 
uh, other individuals who spoke fairly fluent Spanish. Uh, um, but there were a couple of different cases where, you know, we had a number of researchers out in these wetlands performing a number of fairly quantitative and hands-on experiments um, that to locals was uh, very uncommon. Um, they didn't know how to, uh, how they were going to understand what was actually happening and they wanted to know what we were there doing. Because um, in a lot of cases, uh, Valdivia residents are, they have a lot of pride for their wetlands. And so for some stranger to be coming in and throwing a number of different things within their wetlands, um, sensors and tubing, uh, was really quite a shock to them. So there were a number of cases where we had a few residents come up to us while we were sampling and or administrating the experiments, um, kind of in a flurry of frustration, um, and of course in Spanish, um, that allowed us to step back and you know let them know what we're here to do, and we're trying to understand the wetlands as much as they are. So kind of letting these residents know that we're on the same side um, and to ease their suspicion about scientists in general. And I think that is something that kind of permeates through any city, um, through any community. Um, scientists you know, may not be perceived as the most um, welcoming individuals, um, but of course we need to break that mold in terms of how to do so best. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that point is so important, especially for urban ecologists, since, you know, when we're doing our science, we're doing it oftentimes pretty much in people's backyards. So just making ourselves available to answer questions that people have and, you know, try and, and shed um, some light on the whole scientific process is I think shedding light will often, you know, help people trust things a, a little bit more. So yeah, I think that's that's a really great point that you brought up. Um, great. So, I, I, is there well, is there anything else that you'd like to say about uh, about this aspect of your your research? Well, uh, I guess just to say that you know this is and has been a work in progress. You know, it's it's been work that I've been really excited to bring forward to engage other types of practitioners in the process. And then hoping to make this information available for um, those involved with wetland restoration as well as water quality mitigation in these different cities. So I think, you know, that's of course importance for me um, in bridging these communities together. Um, and I think it, you know, it's also important to highlight the importance of including urban wetlands as a highlight in some of our restoration goals um, across a lot of our UREC cities, we have uh, resilience plans in place that may or may not incorporate strict details about what these natural interventions may be. And so this work in an effort was to say, you know, urban wetlands, they're able to process quite uh, a large concentration of nutrients, especially within their water column. Um, and that can be translated across uh, cities and across different environments um, as best as we can. So, you know, it's, it's been 
somewhat of a struggle, but also an exciting opportunity to translate this quantitative data into something that's tangible, something that's digestible um, to practitioners, um, and how it can actually be brought into some of these restoration goals. Well, speaking of uh, making your research digestible, uh, I've asked you to prepare a haiku about your research. And, you know, haiku is just about the, the, the smallest amount of space that you really have to, <laughs> to share what your, your research is. So uh, do you, were you able to come up with one? Yes. So excited to share that. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear it. Let's, let's, let's go. Where blue meets green and gray, flowing waters rinse away, dirty footprints left behind. Wow, beautiful. Really some nice colors, really visual. I had some rhyming in there too. Oh boy, poetry. that was <laughs> true poetry. That was, uh, that was really great. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, okay, uh, that's, all the questions that I have for you, is there anything else that you have going on, next steps for your research that you'd like to plug in case people want to get in contact with you? Well, so through this uh, research project, I've been really keen on um, understanding other cross-city comparisons uh, for a number of different types of extreme events. And so this research has led to a separate research project um, that I'm excited to delve into. Um, and it's actually focused on um, defining what we call an urban flood pulse concept. And this is in contrast to the traditional concept of flood pulsing in large floodplain uh, river systems. Um, and so in cities, we experience floods, of course, sometimes on a regular basis sometimes much more episodic in nature. And so this project is focusing on understanding how these flood pulses produce a particular signature um, within a city and how those signatures may differ um, or compare across our network cities. Um, so this is dealing with a lot of time series analysis to break down these signatures, if you will, um, of flood pulses. And in an effort to better understand how we can better approximate flooding, uh, particularly during extreme events um, that may or may not have um, the full capacity to withstand large amounts of flooding. So this is of course a work in progress, but I'll be excited to share some more updates in the future. Well, uh, we'll get you back on the podcast when, uh, when that happens. <laughs> Great. I would love to join again. Thank you. All right. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. It's a really fun conversation. I know I learned a lot. I hope uh, our listeners did too. Um, yeah, thanks so much for being here. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, and that's all we have for this month. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network.
or Eurex as we usually refer to it. To learn more about Eurex, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.